Welcome back to Unbroken Arrows Podcast. I'm Catherine. And I'm Greg. And today we are going to talk a little bit about turkey hunting, but to start with, we've got a couple of things we want to say first. Right. Uh, last week was our interview with Dave Enticott from Camp Christopher, and just really want to say thank you to Dave again for the time that he took and, and the information and story that he shared about uh, Camp Christopher. It was a lot of fun interviewing him, and uh, we sure hope that you also, as our listeners, were able to learn something about Camp Christopher and, and his story, and also maybe consider contacting Dave and Esther about possibly camping at Camp Christopher this year. The contact information that we'd like to share just one more time, you can email Dave at Camp Chris Cotton at gmail.com. And you could also visit their website, which is www.campchriscotton.com. The other thing that I'd like to mention, and Catherine, join in at any time, but uh, I, would, I would like to ask or request that uh, those of you that are listening, if you have any feedback, please uh, feel free to do so. Our email is unbrokenarrowspodcast at gmail.com. And we would really like to hear what you think. If you've got any ideas that you'd like to share with us with regard to topics, things maybe you'd like to learn about that we can either research for you or we might have a little bit of knowledge with regard to that. We've also got one little mistake we need to correct from episode two where Greg said that he and my mom got married January or June 4th. Actually, it was June 3rd. Yes, and I did hear about that from several people. And I apologize, Stephanie. It was nerves, not of the wedding, but of the podcast. That being said, I think we can transfer into our turkey information. And what we're going to do today is talk about what you need to do basically to, to plan for a turkey hunt. And in, let's see, in South Dakota, the deer season ended on January 1st. In Nebraska, people can still hunt antlerless deer until the end of January. So there are certainly some people still hunting, but at this point in time, a lot of people are starting to transition to the next, I suppose, major hunting season that will be open, and that'll be the spring turkey hunt. The first thing I guess I'm going to maybe go on a little bit of a editorial on, but the, the most important thing is to know your seasons. And in some states like South Dakota, they have units. So know what unit you are hoping to or planning on hunting. And also know the, what the application deadlines are, because they vary from state to state. And you also have to really determine if you haven't hunted before, you have to decide if you're going to hunt with a shotgun or if you are going to shoot archery. So if you're starting out, those are probably some of the most important things to look at at this point in time. And South Dakota is nice. I think Nebraska is the same way for residents. But as long as you are a resident and you are using an archery tag, you can buy that tag at any point throughout the season. Whereas for sure, South South Dakota shotgun, you do have to apply for that tag. Uh, 
Uh, but East West River, you have to apply for a specific unit and then they will let you know whether or not you got that tag. In South Dakota, uh, it's referred to as the prairie region or prairie season, as well as the Black Hills. And then within the Black Hills, then there's a Custer State Park particular tag as well. So for the most part, all of South Dakota, except the Black Hills, is considered prairie. Yes. Is that yeah. true? Yeah. Um, the prairie is going to be like your grasslands, your flatland. Um, and then Black Hills, like I said, is their own. You can buy those tags at any point, whether it's shotgun or archery. That's actually just going to be a shotgun tag, technically. But you can use archery equipment, um, any lesser weapon. And then Custer is specifically within the Black Hills, and that is going to be, again, a draw. And that is going to be one that you're going to need multiple preference points. So if it's something that you're looking forward to and want to do, you should start applying sooner rather than later. Okay. And Nebraska is quite a bit different uh, with regard to the purchase of license. If you're a resident, it's very easy. You go onto the website and and purchase the license that you uh, want. And... The only thing uh, that's different with regard to a non-resident in Nebraska is that they have a limited number of uh, turkey tags that they do sell. Okay, for non-resident licenses, regardless of whether you're in Nebraska, South Dakota, I think it's the same in every state. Non-resident licenses are more expensive. Fees are reasonable for residents no matter where you are. But it does get a little bit pricey for non-residents, and you really have to decide if that's something that you want to do. I know Catherine and her boyfriend Nate uh, did make the decision last year that they wanted to try to harvest at least a hybrid, Merriam, so uh, they were willing to pay the non-resident price. Well, so Catherine, what do you think? If uh, somebody was listening to to us and they wanted to, for the first time, go turkey hunting like I did two years ago, what do you think is the most important thing that people should look into? Well, you got to figure out where the turkeys are and where you can legally hunt. Where the turkeys are is always a good place to start, yes. It's hard to hunt them if there are no turkeys. We found that out last year. That's right. Well, they were there. They just weren't. I'm where we pretty were. sure they weren't there. Yeah, okay. Figuring out where you're going to hunt, um, and I know we kind of talked about this earlier, but whether that's you're going to find family or friends that own land that you can hunt on, or if you're going to search for public land, just figuring that much out before the season even starts or before you apply, because like I said, in South Dakota, you do apply by unit. Figuring out where you want to go is going to be huge. And one of the things that you may run into if you decide to try to find a a place that is owned, private land, in other words, owned by someone, the landowner has the right to say yes or no. And I think that it's also something that, uh, you know, I've heard stories, I'm sure you've heard stories about, you know, people uh, maybe, maybe getting denied permission. I have stories. Sometimes when you get denied um, on private land, you have to remember that that is the the landowner's right to say yes or no. And they may have had bad experiences. 
I think if we probably would get stories from landowners also about things that they've they've granted permission and then gave them particular instructions and then maybe those instructions weren't followed. So for the next group of people that came to ask, their their permission was denied because of uh, somebody not just being kind and courteous with regard to the landowner's requests. There are plenty of things, too, that you can do when asking permission that is going to help your chances. First of all, just being very kind, going up and saying, introducing yourself, telling them how many people you plan on having out there, what your plan is, asking them if they, whether it's turkey hunting, deer hunting, whatever it is, asking if they want any of the harvest. If you're goose hunting, if they want a couple of geese, which most people tell you, no, you can keep them. <laughs> um, and then also just creating a relationship with these people. There's a couple of landowners that I or we as a family will bring gift cards to every year. We'll just kind of keep in contact, those kinds of things, and creating those relationships so that you have a good structure for when you do want to hunt. Sure. And something that is, well, I would say within the last, well, well, okay, 40 years, that's a long time. So it's it's been a long transition. But but like when I was in high school, very rarely uh, did you see or hear about someone selling a rights for private land. And that's something that is a lot more common now than it was back when I was first getting into hunting. So that's also something to keep in mind. And I think there are different ways that uh, those leases work. And there's way to, to go about, I guess, a sort of lease that you're not paying money for. I know a lot of people that have just offered to help out on farms, will help clean tractors and do all of the grunt work at a couple days throughout the season to be able to basically earn the right Land. And I experienced that this year with regard to deer hunting because I also contact, make every effort ahead of time to contact the landowners surrounding the area where I hunt because a deer often travels sometimes very large distances before it is fatal for them. And I talked to a, a gentleman who farmed an area and, and they were in the middle of corn harvest. And the first question he asked was, do you drive a semi? And I said, no. And he said, I can teach you. So I think you're going to run into a lot of those kinds of things too. And, and they would appreciate any help. And if you don't try to pretend you know something you don't, because you'll get caught in something like that or a situation like that, where that's probably not a good situation. If you don't know how to drive a semi, say you don't know how to drive a semi. Okay, the public lands is something that I want to talk about a little bit. There are a lot of public lands. I don't have numbers in front of me, but I do know that each state is trying or making efforts to uh, increase the amount of public lands that uh, are available for all to enjoy. And that's not just hunting. Some of those things are also with regard to uh, parks and other areas that people can enjoy just the outdoors. But um, South Dakota and Nebraska both have good programs that also include walk-on areas to hunt. And in other words, it's private land, but the landowners are enrolled in a program that allow people to walk in to hunt. 
And the, the public lands I'm referring to when I say get an atlas or check the website are like state recreation areas, uh, areas where states have set aside uh, sometimes very large tracts of land that people can access. But there's also something to be aware of there with public lands is that public lands, it does mean anybody and everybody can hunt there. So there is a hunter's etiquette that you need to be aware of. And just being a nice human. There's plenty of times. You know, I've hunted public lands before and just ran into people that were out trying to make other people's lives difficult. It's putting a bad rep on hunters themselves, just as a group of people, and you don't want to ruin it for everyone else. Absolutely. There are also things, and we use Onyx, which is a app that you can purchase and use on the phone uh, on your phone. They do have a free version as well, but there are lots of apps out there, and that can also help you with regard to private land and finding landowners and trying to get in contact with them. I don't think there's phone numbers and those kinds of things listed. Yeah, Onyx will tell you the who it's registered under. Sometimes it's just a trust. Sometimes it is a name. And then they're also going to give you their tax address. So again, sometimes it's the actual address of where they're living at. Sometimes it's a P.O. box, um, things like that. But usually my rule of thumb is if you can knock on their door, do it. Otherwise, you usually can find a phone number, but definitely first try to find, without being creepy, try to find out where they live. Yeah, have a a face-to-face conversation. That's always best. So that being said, when you get permission, whether it's private land or you decide that you're going to hunt public land, you're going to want to start your scouting process. And what do you do when you scout a new area or an area that you've been before? You're really just going to look for anything that can be helpful, whether it's actually looking for the turkeys, figuring out where they're roosting, so where they're sleeping, what trees they're using, what areas they're going to in the afternoon, things like that. It Hmm. could also just be looking for turkey sign, which is, you know, feathers, turkey poop. And that's what I was going to ask. If you see a stand of trees and you think that it's a area that turkeys roost, what do you look for? Turkey poop. There will be turkey poop everywhere. What about feathers? You'll have some of those too, but my big thing is turkey poop. I'm going to look for it on the tree and then just on the ground all around it. Do all turkeys roost? Not hens. No, they do. Even yes. when they have eggs. Yeah. This is your trick question. Yeah, it was kind of a trick question. Yes, all well, turkeys roost that I know of. Yeah, unless the, the hens are nesting. The hens do stay on their nest day and night for about 28 days during the incubation period. And I think then that that is when most of the predation takes place for the turkeys in some years. Some years that is significant. So turkey populations do rise and fall. That is going to be after the turkey hunting season, though. So you won't have to worry about that while you're turkey hunting. That is correct, because that's why that's what's happening while you're hunting, is that the toms are searching for a mate. And that's why it's a little bit Trying easier to, get to laid. call. <laughs> 
Okay. This is why we check explicit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But uh, anyway, that is what a tom turkey is doing, strutting, is trying to attract a mate. One of the things that just to kind of circle back, I'll be circling back on a couple of different things, but, but one, we were talking about getting permission to hunt, and that's something you should do ahead of time. But when you're getting that permission, you also need to make sure that you communicate with the landowner if you're talking uh, uh, about hunting on private land, not so much on public land, but to get permission to scout as well. So to let them know that the landowner to know that you will be out there uh, trying to uh, identify the areas where the turkeys are and uh, document their behavior so you can better hunt them. One of the things to keep in mind as well is if you start scouting early, and by that I mean maybe February, early March, you're going to see a little bit different behavior of those turkeys in what I would still call the winter months because they flock up. They're in big groups in the wintertime. When that starts to become mating season, they break up and split up into smaller groups. Keep in mind that when you're scouting and you see a, a large number of, of birds in a particular area feeding, moving from one place to the next, that's not what you're going to see in season. And they're just going to act different. A lot of the hens are still with this year's poultry. Is that the right word? <laughs> no, that is not the right word. That's the word. What are baby turkeys called? Um, poultry is chicken, isn't it? Well, poultry is a yeah, bird, you know, so they'd be in the poultry family. But I would say that young of the year. The hens will still be with their young and then as well as a lot of your uh, toms and jakes are still going to be grouped up nice and tight. And what is a jake? A jake is a younger male turkey. Okay. And you can tell that it's a jake because it's going to have a very short beard. And then also the middle feathers of the fan will be longer. On a jake. On a jake. Whereas a tom, which is a full adult male will have a longer beard and a full fan where all of your feathers are going to be about the same length. Okay, so you mentioned the beard. So in other words, that means that if it has a beard, then it's a tom. No, there are bearded hens, which, depending on your state, can be legal to shoot. That Sometimes is those hens get confused and start growing. Yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> why that happens, but but it does. The, if you do your scouting and you take the time to observe them, there are differences with regard to the hens and the toms. Toms, the feathers are almost like iridescent, a little mm -hmm. shiny, and hens are a little bit more dull. dull. Again, it's pretty easy to, if you do your scouting and work on the front end, you should be able to identify a Jake or a Tom there, without much issue. Yeah. And the heads between like a Jake or Tom versus a hen, the head is just completely different. Again, it's your hen is going to be kind of a neutral color and your Jake and Toms actually, when they get fired up, they're going to turn like white and red and blue. It's pretty cool. It's like an American flag on a turkey head. Red, white, and blue. That is true. <laughs> I was a poet and didn't know it. <laughs> okay. 
one of the things that I would advise and one of the things that I did do when I decided that I was going to hunt turkey for the first time was I truly tried to learn as much about the turkey, the turkey behavior, and also about turkey hunting because I I personally didn't have any experience. So some of the things that uh, you might suggest, Catherine, in terms of learning what to do on a turkey hunt and and uh, how would you go about that? Well, if you can and you know people who have turkey hunted, that is the very first place that I would go. Just because everywhere you hunt, no matter what species it is, there's five different turkey species. species. I actually think there's more than that. Really? Yeah, I think so. I thought it was a Grand Slam because there was five of them. Grand Slam is four, my dear. Four runs. I know, but they call it a Grand Slam and there's five. Because it's the Eastern Merriam, Rio, Osceola, Osceola, Gold. Gould, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. And then there's also technically it's an oscillated turkey and that's in Mexico. And it looks like a peacock, but they don't really count that, I don't think. But depending on what type of turkey you're hunting, they're all going to have a little bit different behaviors and patterns, uh, respond to calls in different ways, have a little bit different of a call. So talking to people that have hunted where you're going to be hunting and the species that you are hunting is going to be the biggest. So for people in South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, what species are they going to be looking at? For the most part, it is going to be an Eastern or an Eastern mix. I have heard recently, and I haven't done a ton of research on this, but when you go back to 19-whatever, when the uh, turkey population was very, very low, and they were moving turkeys around and reintroducing them into certain po- or certain areas, that most of your Easterns nowadays, especially in this like Midwestern area, is some sort of hybrid. We do call them Eastern, so so for the most part, it's going to be an Eastern turkey. If you get into the Western parts of South Dakota, kind of all over Nebraska for the most part, you will also have Merriams, and Merriams are going to be your turkeys with the white tips around the fan. One of the things that I did is, and I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy, so I did go to the library, and I found books that I could read, and um, a variety of books are available still in libraries. And of course, the web. And one of the things about the web is there is a an abundance of information. And sometimes it can be a little bit maybe uh, overwhelming. So you want to make sure that you're looking specifically for something that will that is going to help you in your area. So what about gear? What types of gear do you think are essential for turkey hunting? Turkeys have really good eyesight and really good hearing. Um, So right off the bat, you're going to want to have some camo um, or be hunting out of a blind or have some sort of structure in front of you that's going to help camouflage your movements. Because if you're anything like me, I cannot sit still for the life of me. So you're going to want to have something that's going to help kind of camouflage your movement so that the turkeys aren't going to be able to see it. And then I would say the next biggest thing, obviously, other than whatever weapon you choose, is going to be probably a call. 
and I would put a call before a decoy, oh, I don't know. They're pretty even. I would say that those are two things that you're going to want to invest in. One, because even just having a slight um, putt or anything that's going to help a Tom or a Jake feel more comfortable, like a more realistic situation is going to be huge. But then, like I said, turkeys are very have very, very good eyesight. And if they come into a space hearing turkeys and not seeing anything, usually they're going to get a little freaked out unless you get a really fired up Tom that's being really dumb. Well, I'm, I'm sure that happens. So I've, I haven't experienced that. The only ones that I've called in uh, have been just dumb, I think. So while we're talking about gear and you mentioned camo, the gear that you purchase... The, Me specifically? N- well, I'm just saying in general. Okay. Because like the gear that you purchased in terms of camo compared to me, what I've purchased, Catherine works at Shields. She... I like know, nice stuff. The, you like nice stuff. And, and I just buy stuff off the rack. It doesn't match. It doesn't... As long as I've got something that somewhat matches the environment I'm in, um, I'm going to be okay. So um, I would say that you can, you can spend what you want with regard to uh, the camo. And um, if you're going to be hunting in conditions that are rugged, and if it's going to be colder, you know, by all means, you're going to want to have quality clothing. Or you're going to get cold and it's not going to be a very fun experience for you. So there's, there's a wide range of prices that you can pay for uh, your gear. And if you're just getting into it, you know, I would just probably say maybe go middle of the road or maybe a little bit on the lower end, just just to make sure that you uh, really enjoy what you're doing. The other thing a lot of people don't realize is if you are going to be hunting out of a ground blind, I personally wear black. I don't wear any of this nice camo that we're talking about. I wear a black sweatshirt because that's what's actually going to blend you to your backdrop behind you. Correct. The inside of the blinds are black. Uh, The outside obviously is camo, but uh, yeah, shadows and being able to detect movement against uh, the black. uh, Well, deer are pretty good at that as well, mm-hmm. being able to identify that movement. But the ground blinds, and you mentioned ground blinds a, a couple of times already, and there are a variety of different types of ground blinds as well. And again, you could probably spend uh, a wide range of, of uh, um, money, costs w- with regard to that too. What, what uh, types of uh, ground blinds or ground blind do you have? I personally use a um, double bowl. I think it's called their double wine. It is a Primos ground blind. It is a four-person ground blind. That being said, it's rated for four people. It fits three pretty comfortably. Okay. Um, if you hunt out of a three-person ground blind, it's going to fit two pretty comfortably. If you hunt out of a two-person ground blind, it's going to fit you and maybe a small child cornered up in the back corner. Right. And I would say that mine, I think, is rated as a two-person ground blind. And when Nate and I were in that, when uh, we were hunting deer, we were, yeah, we were... Snuggling we were, pretty we much. We were snuggling. We were close. 
So that's true. But they also, with turkey, you also, um, there are a variety of what they call quick set or like um, it's a barrier. So in other words, it's maybe three feet high or something like that. And you stake them into the ground and you just hide behind it. And that can be as much as two stakes and a um, burlap sack that's in front of you. Turkeys don't as much as deer see like the shapes of things. They look at movement. The the other thing with the ground blind, because with turkey hunting, you are usually going to get out into the field very early before sunrise. And if you purchase a, a ground blind, and a lot of these are pop-ups. So in other words, they're relatively easy to set up. But you had better practice setting it up, um, maybe even in the dark, because uh, you could use headlamps and those kinds of things too. But but that's not just something you want to take out the first day and uh, try to set it up. The real trick, usually popping it up is pretty easy. Like Greg said, I would still practice it a time or two. The real trick is putting it back down. If you don't know the right sequence to put your ground blind back down, it won't fold up. So make sure you either talk to someone at whatever shop you buy it from or you're watching videos. Because it is fairly simple as long as you get the right order. Right. The the other thing that, and again, I use a crossbow. So, Cross gun. So... We need to we need to have some experts on here with regard to this debate. I am the expert. You are the expert. Okay. Well, anyway, I use a crossbow. So um, shooting from the blind, whether it's a crossbow, a shotgun, or uh, the bow, I think that's also something that you should not do the first time when you're hunting, that's something you should practice as well. Take a target out, set up your blind, and then shoot the target uh, at different angles because you're not going to be able to always call. Well, you might not be able to call them at all, but you may not be able to call the toms to your decoys. So you're going to want to be able to move about your blind and you're going to going to want to practice um, different shots from different angles. Especially if you are um, shooting a bow, whether it is a crossbow, more so a compound bow or a recurve, just because the amount of strength you have while you're standing and shooting is going to be different than if you're sitting or if you're kneeling or if you're kind of at just an odd angle instead of just being standing upright and shooting at a target. So you are going to want to be prepared for those. And the fact that you have to draw the bow mm-hmm. in in a ground blind is something that you, you're going to have to practice and get used to as well. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the difference between, I know with crossbows I've, or yeah, crossbows I've seen different things referred to as they're a point and shoot. And that's true. But, um, and it's really one shot with mine because there's, mine's a a draw with a string that you have to draw to to cock the crossbow again. Um, Those are things that you need to practice. And um, you don't want to be unprepared when you have the opportunity to, to maybe harvest a turkey. And as he was saying, whether you 
can column right to your decoy or not, the type of call you have is also going to make a difference there. So you're going to have a box, a slate, or a glass, um, and then diaphragm calls are going to be your main few. Um, Which ones do you prefer? I have a glass call, which I really like. Um, I think it's just sounds the best. I also have used diaphragm calls, and I think part of why I like my slate so much is just because I'm not super proficient with my diaphragm calls. They work well in a pinch if I'm trying to use my hands for other things or if we're doing more of like a um, running gun style, which is like a spot and stock for turkeys. I think the slate is the loudest and the clearest and easiest to use personally. One of the things that I would suggest, and it may not be a popular suggestion, but maybe the first time that you go out, you don't really think about harvesting. And that's what I did uh, when I, my first year that I did turkey hunt. I went out because I watched some of the YouTube videos and I had a box call. So I tried to mimic what they were doing on the video. I had a couple of the diaphragm mouth call calls. And I also had a, a slate that's a ceramic slate. It's not a, a true slate. But so I practiced all those, but I never had any chance to really um, practice on the actual turkeys. Now, I'll also say that I tried that to go out and hunt and really not even think about harvesting. And when I came home, there's like several bands of wild turkeys that like are gangs and in the small town that I was in. But uh, so anyway, I was out hunting and didn't see a turkey and, and came back to the house. And, and lo and behold, 50 yards away from me were... Um, three toms and two hens just kind of walking around through the yard. So what did I do? I pulled out my backpack, pulled out my calls, and started seeing what types of responses I could get. And that really helped me because I learned very quickly that my slate call is my weakest call. Um, not too bad on the, on the box call, but really the best was the diaphragm, the mouth call. So... That's what I prefer. And plus, that keeps your hands free. Mm -hmm. My, If I had one piece of advice to someone who's figured out, you know, where they're going to hunt, how they want to hunt, all of this, would be not to overcall. That is the biggest mistake that people make. I make it all the time because I'm like, oh, well, nothing's answered me, so I better just keep calling because then they're going to hear me. I promise you they heard you. They're either making their way there or they're really just not that interested do not overcall. Call about like half as much of what you think you need to and go from there, especially if you're hunting birds that have been pressured really at all because they're going to be wary to the call anyways. Right. Good advice. And I think that that's also one of those things, too, that you will probably learn with time and more experience as you as you continue to uh, look to hunt. The the other thing, and we've talked mostly about archery, um, but using your shotgun, I know that, and I'll be honest, in my entire life, I've never patterned my shotgun. Neither have I. So, but a lot of people talk about that because when you 
uh, shoot a turkey with your shotgun, you do want to try to target the head. Mm -hmm. You're going to want to have a tight pattern, whether you just use a full choke that maybe came with your gun or you get a specific turkey choke. I would say if you're using the full choke that came with your gun, which that's what I've always used, and I've shot plenty of turkeys that way, usually you're going to be okay and you're not going to have to pattern your gun unless you know that you've had issues with it shooting high or low in the past. When you switch to a different brand of a turkey choke, that is when I would definitely double check that pattern and just make sure that it is still on. Again, Catherine found a way to throw that in there that she's harvested numerous turkeys and I have not harvested any, but that's okay. I'm getting used to it. But one of the things that I want to address is that we are talking about turkey hunting and the focus of our podcast is healing through the hunt. And one of the things that we really haven't talked about is how the sounds in the morning the the time that you get to spend outside listening to the world wake up it is really um, pretty fantastic you get out there and it's still dark and there's very few sounds that you hear maybe vehicles on a road nearby or anything like that and then all of a sudden you start to maybe hear a few birds maybe squirrels which sometimes are the bane of my existence (laughs) they they will wake you up very quickly because you don't know if that's a turkey on the ground or a squirrel on the ground but then if you're fortunate and you're in an area where they're roosting then you'll hear that first gobble and those are the kinds of things that that are part of the healing that I would call healing while hunting. And I'm not a morning person and I love turkey hunting in the morning. It is. It's, it's, I think it's one of my favorite things to do to go out and deer hunt and you get up early in the morning and, and you hunt from a deer stand. I hunt from a ground line. Um, you know, deer don't, deer don't give you any indication that uh, they're waking up and they're going to start moving, but the turkeys do. I've had a lot of people tell me, I've never really elk hunted. We went once for a cow elk um, early September, I think two years ago, but it wasn't like we were really chasing elk. Um, But I've heard a lot of people say that turkey hunting is like mini elk hunting because you do get to call and you're getting a response back and you're more or less depending on the style, but you are kind of chasing them and you are having that interaction with the noise as well. And that is true. A turkey hunt is a true interaction. And and that is a little bit unique as well. Uh, maybe a lot of bit unique. But uh, as I mentioned on an earlier podcast, the first time that I actually called turkeys in basically was in shock because I really did not know what I was doing. I didn't think I knew what I was doing. And I I did it well enough to bring the turkeys in. And you mentioned several times about how good their hearing is. And these, there were three toms that I called in and one was more curious than the other two or other, yeah, the other two. But you talk about, they know where that sound came from. And this one came around the corner, came around a cedar tree in about 10 yards. Yes, I still missed. 
about 10 yards right in front of me and just stared at me. And I was doing my absolute best to not move and try to get it. It was almost too close to use my, it's probably, I'll use that as the excuse. It was too close to use my scope. Okay. So, and, uh, and Mesa was with me at that time and she did a tremendous job of staying still. And I, I missed anyway, but, uh, yeah, they knew exactly where that call came from. And that was probably a question they had too. Why, why did that come in that, that, uh, the brush as opposed to out in the open by where the decoys were? Catherine, we've talked a lot about the actual hunt in this case, but, uh, you're quite a photographer and, uh, maybe somebody's interested in what we're talking about, but doesn't really have that interest to go out to harvest a turkey or a deer or anything else like that. What, what would you suggest? You can do all the same things, but instead of shooting a turkey with a bow or a gun, you're just going to be shooting it with your camera. I have posted this video on our Instagram page already of my turkey that I shot with my gun last year, but I did get a really nice video of it on my camera, and I have tried previously usually I forget to turn the camera on because I'm so excited but getting out there and using a decoy using a calls anything like that to get those turkeys to come into you closer is still going to work well if you are just out there to take pictures of them right and and that is something that we would promote as well is to be able to get out and and um hunt but you don't necessarily have to hunt for harvest. Um, you can take pictures. You can just go for the experience. Bird watching um, is one of those things that that is similar to going out and um, scouting. And so those are the types of things you can do. And and maybe hunting is for you. Maybe it is not. But there are many different ways to enjoy the outdoors. So to all of our listeners. Take some time to get outside, get outdoors, and experience its healing powers for you as well. And with that, until next time.